Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. I'm Jackie Cameron for Biz News. On today's show, we've got Terry Dennison, CEO of iconic South African brand Tredidor, entrepreneur, Forensics for Justice founder Paul O'Sullivan. And as usual, because it's Festive Friday, we've got South African wine queen Carrie Adams joining us in the second half for a sundowner. We're also talking about motoring and property. First, the business news highlights from my business colleague, Melanie Nathan. South Africa's government hopes that the rate of COVID-19 inoculation will increase from April. Health Minister Dr. William Kieser said the country is expecting half a million Johnson & Johnson vaccines between now and the end of March. He also said that between 5 and 7 million are expected to arrive in April to June. COVAX will also be shipping half a million jabs to the country. However, Deputy Health Minister Joe Partler said South Africa is falling far behind its target of 1.5 million vaccinations by the end of the month. He expects only 700,000 vaccinations to be completed by the end of March. In markets, asset manager 91 has disposed of its stake in sugar producer Tongat Hewlett, which amounted to just under 4% of ordinary shares. EOH has cancelled its AGM, which was convened to obtain shareholder approval for implementation of its 2020 share plan. The company announced that after feedback from shareholders, further consultations will be held before adoption and implementation of the plan. Nedbank expects profit for the year ended December to drop by almost 60% due to the impact of the pandemic. It expects headline earnings per share of between 10 and 12 rand. And finally, pets are gaining weight just as their owners have been during the pandemic. According to our partners at the Wall Street Journal, sedentary lifestyles, bad diets with chimney snacks and stress eating means that the number of pets diagnosed as obese is rising. You can subscribe to biznews.com for full access to the Wall Street Journal. I'm Melanie Nathan and that is your Biz News Flash Briefing. My colleague Justin Rowe Roberts covers the JSE for Biz News throughout the day. Justin, tell us what's been happening on the JSE today. The JSE All Share Index increased 500 points to 68,200. Some of the day's highlights include Sasol skyrocketing by over 14% to 223 rand a share, and that's on the back of Brent crude rallying to its highest level since 2019. Iron ore miner Kumba increased by more than 50 rand a share to a shade below 780. Multi-choice was one of the few losers on the day, down 3.5 rand to 127 rand a share. And coal producer Exaro increased by more than 6 rand to 176 rand a share. In the currency markets, the rand weakened against all the major currencies on the day to 15 rand 33 against the greenback, 21 rand 20 against the sterling and 18 rand 30 against the euro. Gold sold off below $1,700 an ounce for the first time since June 2020. Bitcoin was flat on the day at 740,000 rand a Bitcoin. And lastly, Brent crude increased strongly on the day as it nears $70 a barrel. Paul O'Sullivan is an entrepreneur and a forensic investigator and founder for Forensics for Justice who will be joining us later in the show. Coming up, we've got some clips from the week of highlights on Biz News Power Hour. 
We've had, we've had some cracking interviews here on the show with entrepreneur Rob Herself revealing that plans to open the lounge area of the Cape are at an advanced stage. Rugby industry legend Brian Van Royen, who is now an entrepreneur in the cannabis sector, shared details of JSE-listed Labat SA's rollout of CBD-infused drinks in the United States. Capitech CEO Khiri Furi told us about how to grow a disruptive bank. And FNB CEO Jacques Siliers told us why the bank's bosses are not overly concerned about looming land expropriation legislation. Take a listen to the highlights. Yeah, we're going to listen to those in just a little while, Jax. But uh, Paul O'Sullivan is now with us. Uh, Paul, can we hear you? Li- can can you hear us loud and clear? Uh, I, I, yes, I, I hear you loud and clear. I, we hear your dog loud and clear too. <laughs> yeah. So Paul O'Sullivan. So they chase after the ibis. Okay, no crooks near your house, Paul. I think they'd be too scared, wouldn't they? Yeah, probably scared of my wife. I don't know who. Uh, <laughs> anyway. So, Paul, today we're picking up on corporate corruption. Our listeners will recall that Marcus Yuster, the former CEO of SA multinational retailer Steinhoff, resigned in late 2017 when the German authorities caught up with his very complex web of deceit, which was behind the company's success. And as it turned out, it was a lot of smoke and mirrors. Yuster has been found guilty of insider trading in South Africa, but he's still roaming free in South Africa. But the German authorities are very interested in him, in him. And we heard this week that it formally charged him with balance sheet fraud. Paul, what do you think of this development? Why have we had to wait for the German authorities to take decisive action against Marcus Joester when everybody can see the evidence in the public domain against him? Um, yeah, I think it's probably quite easy to understand. The investigations in Germany probably started a year or maybe even more. Uh, before any investigation started in South Africa. The South African investigations were triggered by the uh, prompt resignation uh, of Joester after uh, the auditors uh, refused to sign off the accounts. He resigned, and that, that led to a collapse in the share price. And uh, then all the, the, the bad things started coming out of the woodwork. And I think it was only at that time that South African authorities started an investigation because up until then, South Africa was unaware, blissfully unaware, of the criminal docket that had been opened in Germany. Remember, um, the company was originally um, registered on the JSE and then it moved uh, to Germany. In fact, I think it had a dual listing. So um, the Germans had a good head start on it. And there were people in Germany that were, they had their noses out of joint as a result of what was going on. So they had already laid the criminal complaints. And, you know, some of these fraud cases, we investigate corporate fraud. And some of the corporate fraud cases we investigate, it can take two to three years to unravel what essentially has been going on for quite a number of years. And it's only after you've interviewed so many people and obtain so much documentary evidence that you're in a position to join the dots. Uh, it would be premature to arrest or charge or prosecute anybody unless you have all the facts. Otherwise, you'll get surprises in the criminal trial. And in Europe, as, as is the case with South Africa, you know, they have these double jeopardy laws. So if you're charged and not convicted, in other words, you're acquitted, you can't be recharged with the same offence. So it's important to make sure that you have your ducks in a row before you start the prosecution.
So, Paul, just explain to us, why is it so hard to unravel fraud in a company like Steinhoff when you've got so many auditors and chartered accountants working for Steinhoff? You would imagine that it would be actually quite hard to hide anything. Why is it so auditors, Most auditors, mm, they carry out audits to look at the the transactions within the company. And a lot of them, you'll see their disclaimers, they accept the undertakings given by directors. They don't question enough of what is placed in front of them. Now, in my opinion, you know, auditors don't audit for fraud. They audit for normality. So a lot of audits are carried out and the fraud is not picked up. And it's only when somebody picks up the fraud and they start to investigate specific allegations that they unravel and something else pops out of the wood and they said, hang on a second, look at this. This is far worse than we ever suspected. You know, to give you an example, um, we got a tip off in, I think it was 2015, concerning alleged corruption on the part of then acting chief of police, um, Paklani, um, Kamatsa Baklani. And when we did our initial investigation, which was at the end of 2015, early 2016, we uncovered what we considered to be um, the building of a mansion at um, a luxury estate for 8 million rand, and yet there were no cash flow. So we opened a, a corruption docket on that. IPID continued to carry out further investigations and they unraveled literally hundreds and hundreds of millions of rand of fraud and corruption relating to very sizable contracts uh, issued to a company uh, that, that, that was doing all the electronic work for the police. So quite often, remember, fraud and corruption is a covert crime. It's not like robbing, robbing a bank. When you rob a bank, uh, you have especially if people get shot and stuff, but you have tellers who can say, well, they came in, they pointed a gun, and they stole the money. You have a you have a crime scene that's easier to see. If there's a murder, you have a body. Now, with corporate fraud, especially if the people committing the fraud cover up their tracks, it takes a long time for the evidence to pop out of the woodwork. In fact, in some cases... You know, you have to raid offices to get the evidence. And that's what the German police did. They raided a number of offices. In fact, the same happened in South Africa. There were a number of raids. Now, certified fraud examiners, which is, a you know, they're, they're spread around the world, they have special skills in these areas. Auditors don't necessarily have those specialized skills, although some audit firms do have certified fraud examiners working for them. So it's just not that easy to uncover what starts off as the tip of an iceberg and eventually can become something that sinks the company. And, you know, in, in, in South Africa, we have, uh, for example, LeisureNet. If you go back, I think it must be about 15 years or no, maybe more. You know, LeisureNet was completely concealed for the best part of a decade. You could buy life membership of a gym. Now, you pay a lump sum of money and you get life membership of a gym. Well, today that would be described as a pyramid scheme because <clears throat> the cost of running those gyms is not spread out over your lifetime. It's a monthly cost. So they have to rely on new members coming in 
to be able to keep the gyms going, and that's how LeisureNet collapsed. Yeah, Paul. Paul, just yeah. getting back to Marcus Yester, from what the Germans have now done, does it mean he's going to be extradited there, or if he just stays in South Africa, he'll never face the law in Germany? How, how does that work? Well, you know, there's a there's an extradition treaty with with the EU. Um, you know, they wanted to extradite uh, Radovan Kretscher, but Radovan Kretscher had to face the music for crimes he committed in South Africa. And he can only be extradited when he's finished serving the time for the offences he committed in South Africa. The same would apply here. Now, until such time as he's been arrested and charged in South Africa, he's extraditable. If I was in his shoes, I'd probably want to jump on a plane and fly to Germany because life in a German prison would be far easier for him than life in a South African prison. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. um, People don't seem to go to jail in South Africa. If we look at President Jacob Zuma, he's been out, and we all all know that he's, you know, charged with corruption, and we've been waiting for 20 years, and we can see that people can use delay tactics. Do you think Joost has learned from the master of uh, justice evasion? Well, Joost hasn't started the journey yet, has he? He hasn't been charged. So it's hard to say, you know, one doesn't like to use a crystal ball. If I was in his shoes, though, and I know that I've been criminally charged in another jurisdiction and I haven't been charged in this jurisdiction, um, I'd, be, I'd be up at Aratambo waiting for a flight to uh, Frankfurt because he'll, far, he'll fare far better in Germany than he would in South Africa. And sadly, the criminal justice system was captured in South Africa. And to, agree, to a degree, it's still captured. It's not been released from the talons which Zuma put onto it. All these senior appointments that took place, most of them are still there. Although one or two of them have been fired and a few of them are in the departure lounge, there's a lot of senior cops who don't deserve to be senior cops and they're still there drawing a salary. And they're almost like sleeper cells. They're dragging out uh, the criminal processes out there. You know, it's like playing a game of cricket. Imagine you had a test match, um, which can run on, for, in theory, it can run on for a week or more. And then you have a situation where um, all of your players were knocked out, bar two, in the first 10 overs. And then you've got maybe, you know, 200 overs with only two cricketers left to make up the difference. You're not going to catch it up. Now, the number of people that have to be processed through the criminal justice system at the moment is so high that it's just never going to happen. I mean, you know, I will be in my grave long before all the state capture people have been prosecuted, if indeed they are all prosecuted. And I mean, you look at the backlog at the forensic laboratories, over 300,000 forensic cases. So there's murderers out there that can't be prosecuted because we're two or three years away from getting the DNA results of the murder they committed. That's shocking. So, Paul, you're going to be delivering the keynote speech at the inaugural Business Investment Conference in the Drakensberg from March the 16th to the 19th. Can you give us a sneak preview into what you'll be telling us? Will you be elaborating on these details? Yeah, I think we'll be talking about why South Africa can survive state capture and how it can survive. 
I mean, you know, I have a number of passports, as is widely known, um, and I can live anywhere in the world. I choose to live in South Africa, and the reason I choose to live in South Africa is because, in my opinion, it's the best country in the world. Yes, we have some challenges, but they are fixable. Um, and I think if we get enough of the fixable people out there doing the job, we'll come right. Um, the methods used have to change slightly, you know, different strokes for different folks. So I'll be covering some of the things. I'll also be covering some of the areas that people don't necessarily know about when it came to state capture and how they effectively shut down the criminal justice system uh, so that all of these uh, what I call zuptoids were protected from criminal prosecution. And, I mean, as an example, it's now almost six years ago when we opened a docket involving four billion rand that were stolen from Praza. To this very day, six years later, not a single person has been arrested and charged, and our docket contained prima facie evidence of corruption, fraud, theft and money laundering. And yet not a single person has been charged. Paula Sullivan is an entrepreneur and forensic investigator and founder for Forensics for Justice. And he's going to be delivering a very powerful speech at the inaugural Business Investment Conference in March from the 16th to the 19th. So if you want more. Next, still on the subject of crime, we've got Treadydoor CEO Terry Dennison with us now. Terry, your company's half-year results show that revenue rose by about 3%. Jackie, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm going to go first, if you don't mind, to the best of business power hour for the, uh, for the past week, and then we'll talk to Terry. Is that okay? That's fine. My buddy Nick Ferguson and I have bought for Santa Cruz Airport and we want to build the Lanceria of Cape Town. We're renaming it Cape Winelands Airport. And if you live in the southern suburbs, it's 35, 40 minutes from here. It was built in 1943 by the British, four great runways, and we own it. So I'm in the airport business in South Africa now. <laughs> Just tell us that story about the cancer yeah. uh, patient. Yes. We've got a lot of treatment uh, studies that have been done on biodata. We've got those available. Those are patients' documentation, but Dr. Gallo, uh, at any request, would be able to to provide that information. Uh, there is a proof that she has run studies on on stage four cancer patients that has been healed. I mean, I've, I've circulated some of those publicly because it is public knowledge. Obviously, it is something that, that doesn't necessarily sit well with your big pharma companies because it's a natural product. It's a you very warm welcome to Kari Furi, CEO of Capitech, South Africa's largest bank with 15 million clients. Happy anniversary, Kerry. Thanks, Jackie. Nice to be on the show. Thanks for joining us. Did you set out from the start to build the country's largest bank? <laughs> yeah, it's a question I get uh, quite a lot, but it's interesting. I still got the business plan that we wrote actually in 2000. Uh, we actually say our, our birthday is uh, 2001 because that's when we got our banking license. But if I look at that uh, business plan, we're actually still executing it about 90%. Uh, I think the only thing we got wrong was we predicted 2 million clients. So uh, I don't mind making an error like that, but yeah, quite nice to have 15 million clients. 
And it hasn't always been easy for you here. You've been caught in the crosshairs of short sellers trying to talk your stock down, and you've also had various other issues. What have been the biggest challenges for you in this two-decade journey? Yeah, I think a big challenge in the beginning was to actually do the transformation from a micro lender or cash loan business to a fully-fledged bank. I think secondly was actually to establish the brand. Um, you know, a brand uh, normally takes you 10 to 15 years to establish. I think Capitec really from about year 13, 14, 15, the brand became very strong. Yeah, and then you had your ups and downs and, and, and things like that you normally manage. Uh, but yeah, I think overall, you know, if, if you build a brand, and the word is consistency and, and making certain that you deliver on the client needs. So there's, there was been challenges, but I think overall we've done well. A big concern is that banks are going to be very badly affected by uh, land grabs because of all the mortgages that will not be paid when people lose their property rights. And that includes farmers because the proposal by the ANC is to take the land and put it into state hands. So uh, have you had any conversations about that in the bank? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very uh, well-documented uh, industry-wide uh, conversation, and we clearly are Oh, monitoring, you know, we've made our comments. We are part of the, of, of, of all the dialogue with, uh, with, with the authorities. And I think there's a, you know, in the end, uh, we've got a lot of comfort that, uh, that the right things will, will happen and we will facilitate and play our part to, to, to support, you know, that outcome. I think it's uh, back to the topic of, of what is it we're looking for is just certainty in policy. Um, and that we can all then uh, move on. But I, I, I think we, we don't see this as a major impact on 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 that uh, ultimate uh, driver of of how we do banking in 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 the agricultural world of property rights. I think there's just there would be elements of environments where where there's an adjustment needed, and we could facilitate those. I think you know uh, we've been in banking 180 years. Uh, rules change, policies change, uh, and you know what we found over the years is that there's just an adjustment or two. No different now when the credit regulation came into play in. Uh, you know, 2008, we obviously had to adjust, adjust lots of our origination policies and, and credit uh, processes. And, you know, we'll, 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 do, we'll adjust accordingly. So, you know, we, we, that's, that's the landscape. Would, would you mind if the people stop paying their mortgages or will you still come after them if they don't pay their mortgages? Yeah, yeah. And yeah so our, our, uh, our, our, there's a legal construct. Uh, obviously, our, our, our mortgages are not linked necessarily to, to that uh, sort of walk away from your debt perspective. So. So we're not. Uh, so at the moment, there's a there's a nice legal construct under the constitution, and, and we and we respect that. Well, that was the highlights of the business business news power hour this week so far. You heard from Rob Hersov, Brian van Royen, Gerry Ferry, and Jacques Cilia. Jackie uh, Terry Dennison is indeed on the line. Excellent. So CEO Terry Dennison is. Uh, got something to talk to crow about, actually, Terry. Your revenue rose by three percent, and your profit was up twenty percent. Yeah, evening, Jackie. Uh, thanks for the call. Yeah, we're very happy with our results. Um, we focus we focus hard on our margins. It's it's one of our standouts. And um, with a little bit of support on the top line, we have been able to deliver, you know, decent a decent return on on earnings per share, which we we're proud of. Terry, um, Trellidor is a company that we all know in South Africa, unfortunately, because of our security. Uh, is this a unique market for you? Uh, the South African market or, or Southern African market or African market, maybe a better 
a better description, I would say has has a need for barrier security um, that outweighs that of our our first world countries in the residential environment. But in the in the first world countries, developed countries, um, there's a barrier security need in in the commercial environment. So, so yeah, South Africa, I would say, is unique on the uh, quantity of barrier security required in the residential environment. So, Terry, I actually don't know a single South African who does not have a traded or product in their home. Isn't this market a bit saturated now? Yeah, Jackie, we get asked that a lot. Um, we we do quite a lot of research um, using um, housing databases and income groups, and we overlay our sales databases over a period of time onto those databases to get a sense of, of where we are. And um, while there's a lot of barrier security in the market, a lot of which is referred to as Trillidor and may not be, um, we believe there's there's uh, not a point of saturation reached, that there's a lot of legs still to go. And it's also a product um, that gets replaced when homes are refurbished, when they're renovated, when windows and doors are changed. Um, products need to be replaced. I see also you have a presence in the UK, and the crime rate is relatively low in the UK compared to South Africa. Why did you target the UK for expansion? Look, the UK, we, we've been involved in the UK for over over 25 years in a, in a small way, in a niche in a niche market, where the market there is fundamentally different to South Africa, and our customer base is commercial retail. It's not residential at all. So there is crime, um, unfortunately, like like everywhere, but uh, we are we are focused on the commercial sector there, the retail sector. And some analysts wonder why you don't delist altogether. Why is your company still on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange? Yeah, well, the standard answer. I mean, at the moment, I, I think it's flavor of don't the day. That's the standard answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we believe the share price does um, materially undervalue the business. And uh, being a cash-generative business, it, it, it is a natural question to ask. Um why don't you delist? But we, we believe um, that the value will return into the business um, in the medium term. And now our results, as they are at the moment, are starting to show that recovery. And we're coming out of COVID, so we, we just don't believe it's the right time for shareholders in terms of value um, to, to exit at this stage. But the board is open to approaches and um, for what is deemed to be a reasonable value will will consider approaches. Terry, you say that your share price is undervalued. What is management looking to do to unlock um, value in the company? The management currently is focused on the business itself. We believe that the business needs to to show the profitability, needs to show the returns to underpin the value, and that's the area that management can make the most difference. Um, That said, we are actively... Um, buying back shares on a reasonably conservative basis, um, but we are applying whatever excess cash we've got into a program to buy back shares. Terry, what do your sales tell us about crime patterns in South Africa? We've got the distinct impression that COVID-19 lockdown has been bad news for the crooks, which presumably is not very good news for you, but you must be seeing some interesting uh, patterns in the granular detail of your sales. Yeah, I, I think I think the curfews that have been imposed, certainly in the hard lockdown, 
definitely had a positive effect on crime. And I suppose you could read a negative um, negative impact on Trelidor. But uh, crime, I would I would say housebreakings were down through the the hard lockdown. But as soon as that lifted up, I think normal activities returned. And in this latest lockdown at level three, with the curfews in, involved, the reports of crime um, that we receive were down, but they will they will get back into play. I think that the medium term or or the forward look is the economy has taken a severe knock. Um, people have lost their jobs. There's far greater unemployment than there was this time last year. And generally, those factors lead to, unfortunately, increased crime. And Terry, before we close off here, uh, some of the uh, companies in the, in, the, in the DIY space, cash build and so on, they've reported uh, higher sales than you have. Any reason why you think yours are down compared to these other companies that are also taking advantage of all of us sitting at home and looking around and thinking, let me think about how I can improve my living environment? Yeah, I, I, look, I think we're benefiting from the, the, the same factors um, that those companies are in that spend has been focused at home rather than elsewhere. Um, but traditionally, our business has lagged that of the primary building materials. So the, the cements, the tiles, the windows, the doors tend to precede um, our product set, which comes in at the end of that cycle. Uh, the re- renovation work, building work needs to be complete before our products are, are required. So we, we're looking forward with anticipation to the next period as, as projects, many projects are completed and product is required. You've been listening to Terry Dennison, the CEO of the iconic Treadidor brand. Well, it's Festive Friday, so we're going to move into the, our lighter section of the show. And uh, I heard a fascinating little snippet on radio this week. Harry Potter child movie star Daniel Radcliffe has been chatting to British journalists about how he mastered a South African accent for a movie called Escape from Pretoria, which the trailer builds as a film about the white Mandela. Take a listen. What is this? Your prisoners of conscience. What's different for us? Hold on to that anger. Yeah, the mind there's another world. That's sort of this. Whenever you do an accent, there there often become uh, little words and phrases that become very, very useful in just like getting into the accent because they are unmistakably South African or unmistakably what you're doing. There were a bunch of English and Australian actors walking around going, how's it? All day. <laughs> <laughs> you fail, you get 25 years if you're lucky. A bullet in the head if you're not. You are the white Mandela. You are the most eluded of them all. My mum is from South Africa, right? With the accent, it is famously tricky. My mum has this little thing she trots out, which is you say, where do you park your car? You know it? No. But one of the first lines I have in the film is the car's parked 250 yards down the road. Exactly. And I was thinking, Daniel, that's like a trap. They've set (laughs) you a man trap um, because it's, (laughs) Where do you park your car? And you have to totally abandon how you attack A's and go, you park your car in the car park. So, right. you know, anyway, I just watched no, the movie and went, oh, no, they're, trick- they're trying to get you. This is, whoever wrote this is, this is mm. they know, and they're trying to set traps. My colleague, Jared Neves, is with us now from Cape Town. How's it, Jared? Where do you park your car, eh? 
Well, I must say, I've never parked my car anywhere. I've parked my car. It's so strange, these these accents, when they try to sound South African, we watch it and you think, oh, that's not how we sound, is it? But, I mean, yeah, I've, I've personally never watched a movie where anyone sounds remotely South African. I find it very hard to not sound South African, yet people find it very difficult to emulate the South African accent. And these guys went to Australia to go and emulate the accent, which is pretty bizarre. How do we know what a South African accent is? Exactly. There's so many. I mean, what do I have a South African accent? Yes, I do. So so do you. So I, I don't know. Maybe we, we should perhaps say what sort of South African accent are you trying to do? Mm. Justin, where do you park your car? Gary, I also don't park my car. I, I park it just like Jared said. Okay. So uh, we're going to be chatting to Carrie Adams, the South African wine queen, and she's got great news for the wine industry this week with alcohol sales being lifted with lockdown restrictions. Hello, Carrie. Where do you park your car? <laughs> How are you, Jackie? Thanks for having me on this fun. In fact, I love Fridays. This is my naughty corner. Normally, it's my story corner. Tonight's my naughty corner. How are you? Did you have a good week I'm in business? Fine, thanks. I, I believe you've got brought some some naughty tipple with you as well. I didn't bring naughty tipple with me today because if I sound grumpy and horrible, it's because I am because I've got a nerve trapped in my spine in my neck this morning. So I'm grumpy and horrible, and I'm counting on Ken Forrester to lift me out of that. Great. Well, we're looking forward to hearing about Ken Forrester's wine. What are you going to talk to him about? Which uh, I'm talking to him about his his FMC Chenin Blanc, which is his flagship, one of his flagships, and it's reached a little bit of a milestone in its life. So I've got Alec in the studio. As you know, everybody knows that Alec is the captain of Battlestar News Bizica. And we've got our propeller head, Justy, and we've got you, and we've got Jared, our vroom vroom. So we're going to have some fun with Ken, who is just larger than life. But where's Ken's operation? Just to tell those of us who are up country uh, exactly where in, in, uh, in, in the Western Cape Ken is. Ken is in Stellenbosch, in a beautiful little part of Stellenbosch. He went, I'll, I'll give you a quick praise of Ken. Ken took the world by storm in the sort of mid-70s. He's, he was gorgeous. He's still gorgeous, but we're all getting a little bit older now. So sort of old gorgeous, Jackie, but, but You're nice. You're as old as the man you feel, Carrie. Yeah, exactly. So I don't want to be 100, so I'm not feeling Ken. But in the mid-70s, Ken was unstoppable. He was brilliant. He was with Southern Sons. He made himself a name as an operator and a restaurateur of note. Anybody who has never eaten Ken Forrester's duck and cherry pie needs to put that on a bucket list. It's fantabulous. And then he took his little child bride, Teresa, off to, to Stellenbosch in 1993. They bought a farm that was called Scholtenhof in those days and turned it into Ken Forrester Winery. And that today is still Ken Forrester Winery. And he launched... A whole foray into the world of Chenin Blanc, which we're going to speak to him about this evening. So it's almost 30 years old, uh, Ken Forrester Winery. How how well have they done? Fantastically well. Um, Dusty will probably be able to tell you that. If they were listed on the stock exchange, I'm sure we would all have made lots of money. But Ken will bring us up to date on that, I think, Jackie. Good. Well, I'm looking forward to hearing from him. I think, do we call his Chenin Blanc easy drinking? No, not this one. This one has got its own heart and lungs. This one is boog. It's a very big Chenin. It's gorgeous. I think I've got... 
Have I got Ken on the line? Kenneth, are you with me? Ken, I'm just listening. I'm not sure who you're talking about. <laughs> How are you, gorgeous man? <laughs> I'm thoroughly well, thoroughly well. Thank you. We were just wondering if the... we dragged you out of the vineyards. Have you been harvesting? Yes, we've had the most fun this week. It's been FMC week all around us. I mean, Ooh. this whole the kind of lockdown threw us off our pitch a little, just got us out of our rhythm of talking to the market and talking to people. Yes. So all of our plans are kind of what plans, you know, nature <laughs> nature has a great way of just reminding you you're merely human. I know. And no matter what plans you have aren't important. I saw a program on BBC Earth, I think, last Sunday. And it was about the fragility and the power of planet Earth. And I looked at it and I thought, any one of us mere mortals who thinks that we are even vaguely important on planet Earth must think again. One yes, swipe of a whale's tail, one earthquake, one tsunami. Tickets. Ken, yeah, what is the harvest tickets. looking like? Okay, every harvest, every harvest is like a first date. I've got to tell you, you're never quite sure what you're going to get. Mm. Every single harvest is, it's, it just, it bristles with excitement, with expectation. You've kind of done all you can. You've put all you can into it. You've, you've done all the clever things you've been taught or know how to do. Mm. You've taken all the notes from last year and the 20 years before, the 25 <laughs> years beforehand. And you've applied all of this stuff fastidiously. And nature kindly does whatever she wants to do. I mean, she's gorgeous. She really is. Beautiful. Well, Alec was just saying, Alec, ask Ken that question. If we'd invested, unlike Bitcoin, if we'd invested in Ken Forrester shares 30 years ago, how much money would we have made? Ken, tell Alec. Yeah, I think, Alex, it might have been worth a while. I'm not quite sure how to value the sweat equity that went into it. But but I, I could tell you that just in terms of a straight business, a bit, it does okay. It looks fine. Yeah, so, yeah. The, the, those People who do the account stuff are all normally quite happy with it. But it's obviously you are a business uh, or, a, or an expert in wine who's gone into business. When these businessmen go into wine, they always complain that it's a bottomless pit. Why would that be? Man, it's just the most fun way to spend wine and complaining about to spend money on wine. And when you're complaining about how much money you're spending, it's a great way to brag. You know, I mean, that's a great way to brag. You just tell people how much cash you're blowing. <laughs> well, talking about bragging, we've got we've got some bragging rights for FMC, which for those who don't know, is Forrester Minot Shannon, and Martin yes. is another old boy, boyfriend of mine. I love Martin, and you sort of teamed up with him oh, when I was still at Anglo American Farms all those many many moons ago, and you developed FMC, which is. Arguably the best Shannon Blanc in the country. You sort of became Mr. Shannon Blanc King, didn't you, Ken? Carrie, you know, I looked at Shannon Blanc. We came down here, we looked at these vineyards, we looked at the property. We bought the property on a, on a kind of whim. Um, it was 1993, and um, the third force was running a mock in KZN. Most of our, our friends were leaving the country and going to New Zealand or Canada or England. <laughs> and I decided we could just semigrate to the Cape and buy the biggest piece of property we couldn't afford. <laughs> it was a, going to be a great deal. <laughs> and you made the bank buy it, didn't you, from memory? Well, me and Ned Bank were very close <laughs> in those days. They were very good to me. <laughs> and have they been happy with the investment in Forrester's Ventures? Yeah, we've never hurt them. We've never done any damage. We've been solid customers and we paid fortunes in overdraft facilities. So I think they must be quite proud of us. And why Shannon, Ken? Ken I tell you simply, Carrie, it was here. It was 
well-established. I'd been to France. I'd seen Shannon in the Loire Valley. Mm. And I couldn't believe it was the missing part of a puzzle that nobody had played with in South Africa. Mm. It's like everybody was playing with a 31-piece chessboard. That There was just one part, that the one piece that they weren't using. Why mm. weren't they using Shannon? Exactly. Well, they were using Stian, weren't they? We thought we thought that Stian was something completely different and was Shannon all along. You know, yeah, that was they figured that out already before then. In the kind of fifties, they worked that out. Mm -hmm. But still, if I think back, there was an Odo Libertas dry Stian in nineteen (laughs) ninety. There wasn't a spear Shannon Blanc or a spear Stian. I can't think of any dry Shannon in those days in the nineties. I think. Hilko Higovich at Borschendal. Hilko Higovich at Borschendal did an experimental wood fermented Shannon, barrel fermented Shannon. Yes, maybe. And when I saw that, I thought, you Blitzen, that's my idea. How dare you do that? (laughs) I mean, it was terrible. Well, needless to say, the mafia got took hold because Hilko's disappeared and Ken is still very much there. (laughs) (laughs) We started fermenting Shannon Blanc in French oak barrels. And I had colleagues and friends and neighbors coming around looking at this, thought, going, so that's really Shannon Blanc you got in the barrels. I'm going, yes. And they said, well, seeing as you're from Johannesburg, you did buy a return ticket, didn't you? Because this can't last. <laughs> yeah, stick to your duck and cherry pies, Ken Forrester. <laughs> yeah, i tell you what. So now we, we're celebrating, a we're celebrating a, um, an anniversary of sorts of FMC. Tell us. Mm. Carrie, it's a shocking admission to make, but I can't believe that we have made FMC consistently now for 22 years, but that we just released our 20th vintage Mm. this week. The 2019 Mm. is our 20th vintage. 2000 was our first vintage, and 2000 was was groundbreaking stuff for Shannon Blanc. We launched that wine at the Cape Independent Winemakers Guild. Um, we, we kind of Martin was a member of the wine ma- independent winemakers guild of the day, and we launched that wine, and it sold much to our amazement and, and pleasure. <laughs> record prices at a record price, I the same price as the most expensive Chardonnay of the day. Yeah, and we were like, "Wow, Shannon can can earn as much as Chardonnay." And then I said, "Well, if you got to, if you want to believe that, you have to be brave enough to take it to the market at that price and get the market." to pay that price because an auction literally is one swallow doesn't make a shenna. Mm. <laughs> you know, I mean, literally. Pardon the pun. No one spit for that matter. <laughs> yeah. mm. And so we took it to the market and we launched it. And I remember Mike Fridgen was at that launch and he said, you're going to have a tough time getting people to pay that sort of money for white wine. I can't, I'm not sure how much luck you'll have with that, but good luck. Yeah. And we came to the market at about 160 rand a bottle for a bottle of I wine. I think it must have been wine. the most expensive white wine in the country at the time. No, I was carefully under... Uh, under uh, Anthony Hamilton chart. Russell. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> we'll just call it like it is. So long before, Ken, long before the Swartland Revolution and all the hipsters and the one I'm sitting looking at Justin across me in the studio here, he's one of those, I'm sure, who drinks all those Swartland wines. Justy, are you? My parents told me my taste buds haven't quite matured yet. I'm not, I'm not onto the wine yet, Carrie. Maybe in a few years, but um, strongly on the beers for now. Yeah, well, you see, you, Kenneth, were the king of Shannon long before the Swartland Revolution. Tell us a bit about that. You know, it was fun to look at Shannon and to take Shannon to a place where I felt it, it deserved to go. And I wasn't alone. There were many of us then who got on the bandwagon, who were pushing Shannon, driving Shannon. We started a little tasting group. 
The tasting group formalized itself to become the Chenin Blanc Association. I got out of the way for a while, let them other people kind of run it all and have some fun. And then I came back into the association about 10 years ago, mm-hmm. and we've done a lot of work in the association. And Chenin Blanc, here's, I mean, some quick numbers. Chenin Blanc has added to the industry just by virtue of the fact that we've doubled the price of Chenin Blanc grapes. Yeah. To, so the money going back to the ground-level producer, the guy who's producing the fruit, um, in the last 10 years, that we've put an extra 400 million into the market. Well, that's worth uh, celebrating. Alec, what have you got to say to that? Well, I think it's almost as good as Capitec. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, you share the birthday with Capitec, Ken, so they're also 20 yeah. years old this year. So congratulations, 400 million. That's, that's, a, that's a lot what of an innovation. Yeah. It's a lot of money. So, Ken, Ken, quickly, what, what are our listeners going to taste when they take that first glug of FMC? You know, Carrie, I keep on getting people sending me pictures of their FMC because they've kept the special bottle. On, and I get pictures recently of their 2014 and their 2012 mm. and their 2015. We just launched the 2019. And when they taste the 2019, they go, that's slightly different to our 2014. Yes, it sure <laughs> is. It sure is. Um, I mean, it, Five it's years just, younger. Yeah. It's fresh and it's tight and it's minerally. And it's got buckets of fruit on it, but it's still held together with a line, a core of acidity running through it, bright acid running through the wine because it's built to last. We've just done a vertical tasting with Shannon Blanc. I presented four pairs, consecutive pairs, 2006, 2007, 2009, 2010, 2013, 14, 18, 19. And it was quite amazing to taste i think the wine of the day was the 2006 really still drinking beautifully yeah. still drinking magnificent fmc is class in a glass you Thanks are one that. of our favorite people i'm gonna see you next week and we're gonna drink some fmc together am i gonna get I'm a taste gonna- of the 2019 I'm going to show you all of those six vintage, all of those eight vintages with the 19 at the end of the lineup. Absolutely. I can't wait. So this was my, my first real run on FMR. Can you are my virgin, um, interview, <laughs> my virgin interviewee on fine music radio. So thank you so much for joining us with Alec and Justin and Jackie. It's always a pleasure chatting to you. So grateful to you, Carrie. Thank you. Thank you, Alec. Thank you, Justin and Kathy, everybody. Thank you so much. Thanks, darling. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. Carrie, the Western Cape is, of course, wine country, but how important is wine to the economy? Because, okay, this business is like a business program. I know it's, 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 uh, um, We've got to pretend to be serious now. <laughs> Why well, it's Friday, for goodness sake. <laughs> Festive Friday. But, but how big is it? How important is wine to the Western Cape? It's very big. It, the wine industry in the Western Cape is the single biggest um, employer in the agricultural industry overall in South Africa. Um, and it, it contributes, I don't want to tell you a fib here, but it contributes something like 30% of the agricultural GDP per annum in the Western Cape. So it's big. 
they if they shut us down, they're losing out. I think last year when we were under lockdown, but that was the whole booze industry. They didn't give us figures for just the wine industry, to the best of my knowledge. But for the whole booze industry, they were sort of losing a few billion rand. They, learned, they lost 13.5 billion rand in the first lockdown, which was, what, six, seven, eight weeks, two months. So it's a big money spinner, very, very big money spinner. I remember reading somewhere 10% of Western Cape's GDP. Does Easy. that sound right? Easy. That's big. It is big. And, of course, it drives the tourist, the tourist um, factor as well. So without the wine farms, nobody's going to go to Cape Town. Why would you go to Cape Town if you didn't go to the wine farms? Well, not to swim. You're certainly not going to go and swim in that freezing cold sea. The restaurants? The restaurants are good. The people? The restaurants the are driven by the wine. Yeah, the mountain. Now, we must stop now because we're going we're gonna to run out of uh, – no, we're never going to run out of things for the Cape. We love the Cape. Especially Jackie. Especially Jackie. Jackie, where do you live in the Cape? Well, I spent a lot of my time in Milneton and Seapoint. And I must confess, I spent a lot of time going to wine farms, not as an expert, but uh, – Good girl. As a student, I hope. Yeah, yeah. Not just a student. <laughs> <laughs> She's admitting, Alec, that's where she spends her monthly salary. The wine farms. So, Jackie. Carrie, before we, <laughs> before we close off here, the, the, the COVID-19 uh, lockdowns have also impacted on global trade and the uh, mm. ships are standing. So what is the impact for exports, the wine industry exports? Well, thank goodness it's better now because our illustrious government, in their infinite wisdom, closed down exports as we entered harvest last year, as COVID hit uh, the government closed down the liquor trade, including exports. So we are sitting at this stage of the game in South Africa with 65% of last year's harvest yet to be bottled or put into box or pupsuck or tank or whatever it is that's going to be exported. Just explain that. What was the logic of closing down exports? You may well ask. Oh, so there, isn't there was a big fight. Um, there was a big lobby group. We all went a bit bananas, and government agreed after six weeks to open up exports again. But we'd already lost a whole lot of the trade by then, Jackie. I mean, it was, you know, you, you make those sales long before you actually pick the grapes. So we'd already lost a huge amount of, of traction by that by the exports being closed down. They did open them up again, thank goodness, and that was probably the only saving grace of the industry during the rest of the COVID year. And is that coming back now, the exports, do you think, or are there still problems with the I think there's problems. I think it's problematic. You know, we all know it's not just the wine industry. It's extremely difficult to establish an international market. And Specifically for the wine industry, I've always maintained that if you have a wine farm, you should be doing at least 40% of your harvest should be for export. At least 40 If I owned a wine farm, I would make it 80-20. But you should be doing at least 40%. So it takes a lot of time and attention, effort, attention to detail and traveling to go and establish those markets overseas. Having established that market, the last thing you want to do is to have to f- pick up the phone and say, sorry, we're not allowed to send it to you. And that's really the question. We know that uh, once you, it, it takes a lot of effort to get into Sainsbury's or exactly. uh, Marks and Spencer's or wherever it is. How have the South African wines been accepted, say, in the UK? And with the exports being stopped, 
do these big retailers just cut you off and say, well, come back next year? Uh, they do. They do actually do that. Thank goodness we have quite a lot of good friends, specifically in the UK. And as much as people bleat about how ghastly the UK is, they're infinitely more civilized than many, many other countries in the world. And the UK has some very good friends in as far as we've got a Greg Sherwood, we've got a Tim Atkin, we've got Tesco's, we've got Sainsbury's. They all purchase from South Africa and they are very supportive. We'll get Greg Sherwood on the show actually from London one day. He is a South African operating in London, has been there and runs Hanford Wines and he can give us some more insights into it. But thank goodness we do have a support base in the UK. And up until about 10 years ago, the UK didn't produce a single bottle of anything. And like with most things, they dominated the wine industry without producing ever a single. It's like Uber don't own a single car, but they're the biggest taxi company in the world. Same thing. Britain drives the wine industry. I interviewed the chief executive of the biggest online, offline wine company in the UK, and of course he's also South African. He says he's Zimbabwean originally, but still South African there. Mm. So we've got a we've got a lot of friends, as you we say. We do, thank goodness. All we over do. the world, yeah. Sorry, Jax, we, we're talking uh, uh, wine here, uh, where we should be talking, I suppose, about other things, but I'm sure you want to find out from... Uh, from Carrie, what her investment her tip is for the moment, given that she, she knows so much about uh, liquid assets. Investing in wine, Alec, do you want to know where to, which wine to buy or which stock to buy? I just know that Carrie has got a knack for finding winners. i tell you something, that one day when we've got time, Jackie and I will do a show about who's going to make the most money, the most um, ROI, I'll give you 10 years. You've got allowed, you've allowed 10 years and we'll do a show and see whose investment is, who's going to give us the, bo- the best. And I know who's going to win. So you've got three weeks to do that. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I think if I was investing in anything at the moment, it wouldn't be wine. I would be buying. I just wish that I'd had the gumption to buy Bitcoin when they were $1 a coin. Alec, why didn't you tell me that? It's, Imagine uh, we could have been billionaires by now. Well, some some people are. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> you know that's the old story that you can't you can't find every winner. Um, being someone who knows a lot about horse racing, uh, sorry, who's been involved in horse <laughs> racing for a long time, no, nobody knows a lot about it. Uh, you can't bet. You shouldn't bet on every race. You shouldn't bet on every horse. And I think it's the same with investments. Good luck to the people who made money in Bitcoin. And, and I'm sure that there's oh, a, there's I can a see strong you reason. And Dirsty looking so awkward and uncomfortable, guys. They look like they've wet their pants. They don't know what to do when we mention the word Bitcoin. Jackie, would you buy a Bitcoin? Don't mention the B word. <laughs> I'm going to go and buy a Bitcoin. <laughs> so, speaking about um, decadent investments and maybe crazy investments, we're moving on to cars now with our business motoring journalist, Jared Neves. And even if you aren't interested in cars, Jared's writing about cars will make your heart sing. He produces brilliant articles about cars on biznews.com. Jared, today we're talking about a wolf in sheep's clothing, the Audi S6. Yes, Jackie, it is a gorgeous mid-sized executive saloon car that uh, looks unassuming, looks, like you said, a wolf in sheep's clothing, but isn't. It packs a 2.9-litre V6 under its bonnet, producing 331 kilowatts and 600 newton meters of torque. So the reason why I say it's a sleeper car is because if you saw one pull up next to you at a traffic light, it would just look like a regular 
common or garden executive Audi. But if the Jive had to put their foot down, it would take off. It is a fantastic, fantastic performance sedan. But it's not just performance. It's got a wonderful, civilized interior. It's packed to the brim with technology and safety features. And what's more, it's got a really, really well-built cabin. So it's just a lovely place to sit. And what is it actually like to drive this car? So if you take it easy, use it for commuting, it's like a regular Audi. Very comfortable, very quiet, very civilized, takes the potholes in its stride. But once you put it into sport mode, it can really take a Porsche on. It is fantastic. Carrie makes wine sound sexy, you make cars sound sexy, Jared. (laughs) What's the pricing like on this car? Well, the S6 is, if I'm not mistaken, just under 1.5 million rand, which is on par with its rival. So BMW will sell you an M5 Ti for just over 1.5 million rand, which is also a good car. And that's actually, uh, it comes with a V8 with 390 kilowatts. So you actually have to choose. Do you want something a bit more shoutier or do you want the subtle and civilized S6? Sounds interesting. Justin, would you like to drive the Audi S6? I think it'll be a little bit better than my 2004 Opel Astra that I currently drive, Jackie. So that's a, that's a definite yes. And a bit yes. cheaper as well. But it sounds dangerous. Is it dangerous, Jared? Oh, not at all. I mean, that's up to the driver, I guess. But <laughs> with, it has quattro four-wheel drive, so um, you're not going to get yourself into a serious situation unless you really want to. But it it really handles the corn as well. And the air suspension, optional air suspension, really does soak up the bumps. Okay. You said it's a four-wheel drive. Does that mean I can buy it to drive on those? All-wheel drive. All-wheel drive. Can I? Yeah. Well, okay. One and a half million is a little bit of a a, a hurdle. But let's just say my ship came in and uh, I went off and uh, needed something to drive to Limpopo, which we spoke about uh, a few days ago. Would this work on those uh, dirt roads that you you have up there? Certainly not. The all-wheel drive is more for grip and traction and handling. But if, like you said, your ship came in and you wanted something indestructible for gravel roads, you just need a Land Cruiser. (laughs) Simple as that. So for a really good read about cars, do go to biznews.com where you can read all of Jared Neve's reviews on just about every car you can think of on the planet. Justin Rowe Roberts covers the JSE for Biz News. He's with us now to give us an update on the stock market. The JSE All Share Index increased 500 points to 68,200. Some of the day's highlights include Sasol skyrocketed by 14% to 223 rand a share on the back of Brent crude rallying to its highest level since 2019. Iron ore miner Kumba increased by more than 50 rand to a shade below 780 rand a share. Multi-choice was one of the few losers on the day, down three and a half rand to 127 rand a share. And coal producer Exaro increased by more than six rand to 176 rand a share. In the currency markets, the rand weakened against all the major currencies on the day to 15 rand 30 against the greenback, 21 rand 20 against the sterling, and 18 rand 30 against the euro. Gold sold off below $1,700 an ounce for the first time since June 2020. And Bitcoin was flat on the day at 740,000 rand a Bitcoin. Brent crude increased strongly in the day, on the day as it nears $70 a barrel. 
And in the U.S. markets, the Dow Jones Industrial Average and S&P 500 flat on the day, whilst the NASDAQ is slightly in the red. That was Justin Rowe Roberts, who covers the JSE for Biz News. And that's all we've got time for today. From me, Jackie Cameron, and the rest of the Biz News team, have a great weekend. We'll be back same time on Monday. You can find all of our shows on the Biz News Spotify channels. Until next time. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.